You are listening to the Murray Hills Church Podcast. To learn more about Murray Hills Church, including our gathering times and how to connect with us, visit us online at murrayhills.com. of equipment will survive so uh so no trouble back there uh good morning thank you for being here today we wrap up our love and justice series today and you made it like you made it through love and justice so you know yeah applaud pat yourself on the back because the last four weeks we have talked about the most controversial uncomfortable difficult awkward topics in our society and in the church and uh, you made it through it. I know the first week or two of this series, some of you are like, I just don't know if I can make it all the way through this series. But you made it. Although today we're going to talk about probably the most controversial topic in the entire series. We're talking about race today. And uh, Ebony and I are going to co-preach this message together. And this is obviously a different format than we normally, normally we've kind of done it conversational. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, today we're going to preach. And I'm going to try to stay real close to my notes because we got a lot of stuff to cover today. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want to go too far off script. Right. Uh, whenever I talk about race from this stage, I usually get one of two reactions. One, there's a group of people who want to be here. Like there's people that usually come from other churches or there's folks that are watching online, maybe tuning in from other churches. And there's a group of people that go, I want to talk about that. I want to hear a church talk about that because it's obviously at the forefront of our society you know you're hearing about it in the news all the time and there are people that say you know I genuinely want to be here I want to talk about it I want to understand how I engage this issue from a Christian perspective and so they they make sure they don't miss this Sunday there's another group of people that want to miss this Sunday and uh, they they don't want to talk about it they they just and and they'll tell me that like you know I just I, I know it's important I know it's an issue, I, I know we have to talk about it sometimes, but I'm just, honestly, I'm just tired of talking about it. It's just, it's, I hear about it at work, I hear about it at school, I hear about it online, I hear about it in, in the media, and it's just, it's exhausting to me that we just have to keep talking about this over and over and over again. And I understand where they're coming from, because we talk about it, as a church, we talk about it a lot, I talk about it a lot on social media, so I, I mean, I I understand that. We talk about it a lot because we want to be a multi-ethnic church. It's at the forefront of our society. It's a very complex and nuanced issue. It's a moral issue, and we feel like we've got to talk about it. But I want to give you two big reasons why we think we have to talk about this issue. Number one is that the church, and honestly society as a whole, are still healing from the wounds of our racial history. In 1963, Martin Luther King said that 11 o'clock on Sunday is the most segregated hour of the week. And 50 years later, that's still true. And that's still true because 50 years is not that long a time. It feels like that's so far in the past, but it's not that long a time. Our racial history is still very recent. A third of us in this church grew up in elementary schools that were segregated. It was normal. And it was legal. We grew up in the 50s and 60s under the the shadow of Jim Crow. A third of us, including myself, grew up in elementary schools in the 70s and 80s that were no longer legally separated. But it was still pretty normal. And I think about my childhood in the 70s and 80s, less than two decades removed 
from the Civil Rights Act. Less than two decades removed from the Voting Rights Act. The history is not that old. It's very, very recent history. This uh, timeline kind of helps me. Whoops, I forgot I'm doing my own slides. This timeline helps me. Sorry, Brian, we hit it at the same time. A history of race in America. If you look from 1619 all the way to 2020 or 2021 now, and if you move all the way from slavery through the era of Jim Crow segregation to the era of civil rights, you can see that we are in many ways in the infancy of the civil rights era of our country. For the greater part of our history, we've been in a very different place. The second reason I think we have to talk about it is because it is a gospel issue. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul takes Peter to task for his racial attitudes and actions. If you read the book of Acts, race came up very early in the New Testament church. In Acts chapter 6, it was already an issue between Grecian Jews and Hebraic Jews. And then it was an issue in Acts chapter 10. It was an issue in, in Acts chapter 15. And in Acts 15, it was supposedly solved. Because in Acts 15, Peter stood up and said... God has showed me that we should not show discrimination. Jews were not accepting Gentiles. And Peter stands up and says, we should not show discrimination. And when he goes to Antioch, he doesn't show discrimination. He openly fellowships with both Jews and Gentiles until some other Jews come along. And then Peter starts to pull back. Here's the way Paul tells the story in Galatians chapter 2. When Cephas, and that's another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. Verse 14 is what I want you to see, and I highlighted it for you. Paul says Peter and the other Jews who participated in this hypocrisy were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So Paul makes issues of race and culture, discrimination and favoritism, gospel issues. Here's the way George Yancey puts it in a a quote that kind of forms the foundation of what we'll say today. The problem of racism is the problem of sin. It requires not only a political remedy, but a spiritual remedy as well. Racial issues are about how we treat each other. And our relationships with each other are clearly of concern to God. That's why we got to talk about it. It's a moral issue, it's a gospel issue, and it's something we need to talk about. Ebony? That is right, and that quote is very accurate. However, we all know that racism is a sin issue, but a lot of people attempt to end the conversation there and not move any further. But we know that that revelation is just the beginning of our racial healing. Just like Peter today, our thoughts on a race tend to follow the rules of the land. But today we're going to talk about how God is calling each of us, both black and white, to no longer follow the rules of our favorite news channel, our favorite political figure, our favorite person we follow on social media, but to be changed by the power of the gospel. God is calling us to adjust our understanding and our actions so that we can present him to the world in a way that they are longing to see. A church that is not divided by race and politics, but one that is striving to be radically united through Christ and look a little more like heaven. Russ, I am so glad that you brought up the statement 
I am tired talking about race because it is all about perspectives. When we talk about race here, it makes me feel seen and known and heard and a part of this body. If we want a diverse church, we have to learn to empathize with one another and hear about the experiences of others, both good and bad. In a diverse church, we're not going to be comfortable all the time. African-Americans are gonna become uncomfortable sometimes. White people are gonna be uncomfortable sometimes. But discomfort creates growth. And that is what the gospel commands us to do. Throughout this series, we've been talking about things that have made us uncomfortable. And that is how we as the church un impact the world. We must learn so that we can grow to love and look more like Christ. A few months ago, Russ and I read a book called Beyond Racial Gridlock by George Yancey. And we were both amazed at how balanced the book was written on the issue of racism. It is convicting for those both black and white and offers an invaluable Christian perspective on how God is calling us to work together to heal the racial divide. When we read it, we knew that we needed to base today's message off of this outline. And as we continue in the message this morning, I wanna stop and define racism. Yancey tells us that racism is often understood based on our race. Of course, there are always um, exceptions to the rule, but primarily, white people view racism as individualistic. They see sin as an individual problem that can only be solved by individuals. So if a someone has a problem with sin, they have to solve it themselves. Just like they believe racism is an individual problem. If someone has a problem with racism, they have to solve the problem themselves. But most African Americans understand racism as a structural problem. People make choices influenced by the structures of their society. So even if individuals do not intend to be racist, racism, they are influenced by the things that are in their culture. So racism isn't an individual problem, it's a structural problem that has been put in place hundreds of years ago, and as we just read in the Bible, since the beginning of time. Herein lies the reason why it is so hard for us to heal the racial divide. We are viewing it from two different perspectives, and so we're not on the same page with the definition, so it's gonna be impossible for us to come up with a viable solution. So we each have to recognize our brokenness, our sin, and that our racial issues are a result of sin and sin sometimes clouds our view of the truth. Yeah, I, I think everybody in here would agree that racism is sin. And what you said is very important, that last thing, that racism, I mean, sin clouds our view of the truth. And what you described and what Yancey describes in the book is actually the sum of our racial divide. Um, and I would clarify, it's not all whites mm -hmm. and it's not all blacks. But generally speaking, those who have not experienced racism firsthand or those who have descended from the oppressors tend to want to forget about the history and just move on. Like, this is all in the past, let's don't talk about it anymore. While those who have experienced racism firsthand or those descended from the oppressed want to talk about the historical evils and talk about how can we gain some kind of reconcept for this. And uh, as you said, the first group looks at racism through an individual lens. I'm not racist, so why? let's, right. let's stop talking about this. And the second group looks at racism through a structural lens. We've got to talk about this because there is examples of institutional racism within our country. And the two sides battle it out. And you can see this played out in the media. You can see this played out in politics. The two sides are battling out, and they're not even talking about the same thing. 
And Yancey in his book talks about the four ways that secular society has tried to solve the problem of racism. Two of those approaches are individualistic and two of those approaches are structural. And we're going to go through those real quick and then talk about a biblical approach to solving this issue. So The first one is colorblindness. So people that lean to this view um, think that in order to end racism, race must be completely ignored. And this is usually attached to the line, I don't see color. So a weakness in this model is that it suppresses the pain of minorities. If you don't see me as a black woman, then you don't realize that my experience in America is different than yours, then that history plays a major part in who I am today. Although colorblindness is a good attempt at equality, it ignores the current racial issues, it negates the beauty and differences of our individual cultures, and it fails to bring current and past issues to light in order to bring healing. And one of the things I should have said before we even went into this, you'll notice in each one of these solutions, there's some good and there's some bad. We think that all four of them ultimately fall short, mm -hmm. but there is some good that is highlighted in each one of them. The second one is assimilation. And assimilation holds that minority members have just as much chance of success as anybody else in society. They've got just as much opportunity if they'll work hard enough and if they're smart enough. Uh, to put this bluntly, assimilation kind of says if, if black people would just learn to act more white, then they'll have just as much opportunity for socioeconomic success as, as white people. And um, what it does is it, it sees it, it sees the problem of racism through, the problem, through class. It, it's generally popular with more upper middle class or wealthier groups in both minority and majority groups because it says that uh, the problem is largely a problem of class. Here's the way Yancey puts it in the book. Historic racism created economic equality, inequality because it produced a damaged minority subculture. And to overcome this, we must reform the subculture of minorities. So if the minority could learn to act more like the majority, then we would no longer have racism. Now, this, this sounds, even in its, as I explained it, it sounds very racist to talk about it, but there is some truth here in that it recognizes that economic disparity is one of the main causes of racism. That if there was more economic equality, there would not be as much of a divide. The one major flaw here you've already picked up on is the assumption that Anglo-European culture and Anglo-European society is somehow better than other cultures and the only pathway to economic success. Now both of these solutions, colorblindness and assimilation, are examples of individual racism. If we would just learn not to see color mm -hmm. and if individuals would just pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, then we would no longer have racism today. And you can see how both of those fall short of the ideal. Let's move into the structuralist views. The third is multiculturalism. So this is where the traditions and cultures of minorities are preserved and valued. This sounds like the closest to what I think heaven will be like. A society where we can embrace our own culture and experiences. But yet it is flawed in that it lacks a defining line between culture and the truth of the gospel. In multiculturalism, the line between scripture and culture can often get blurred. It becomes difficult to see everyone, value their culture, create a level of equality, and yet hold everyone to the same standards set before us by Christ. How do we know if what we are trying to assess is cultural or sinful, and who decides? And Yancey says, in their desire to enhance the perception of minority group cultures, 
Multiculturalists tend to overlook minority shortcomings. This model tends to ignore the fact that even the oppressed are affected by sin. And then the last one is called white responsibility. And this is the one that gets all of the press. This is the one that uh, you tend to see in the news all the time. Uh, it's the most controversial one politically because it drifts over into issues like critical race theory and reparations. And both of those are issues that many people in the white community uh, react strongly to. So white responsibility holds that the main responsibility of racism falls on the dominant group. It lays blame at the feet of Anglo-Europeans and Anglo-European society. And at the extreme end, it would say that all whites are inherently racist and that all blacks are incapable of racism. At the more moderate end or measured end, it would talk about issues like white privilege and how members of the dominant racial group still hold all of the structural power in society. The bottom line for this model is the belief, and I'm quoting Yancey again, regardless of whether a majority group member has personal racism, our social system works to the advantage of whites and to the disadvantage of people of color. Now, you can clearly see how this one is an example, and the one that Ebony just talked about, multiculturalism, is an example of a structuralist view. They are the opposite of individual views of racism. And there is some truth here. So I, I know when just, I just said three trigger words, critical race theory, or three trigger phrases, critical race theory, reparations, and white privilege. So those are, those are all triggered to us, and, and we instantly want to shut down the conversation. There is some truth here. The truth here is that it helps us see race, uh, racism as a broader problem than just an individual sin problem. So it helps us see how there are some institutional inefficiencies or some institutional racism within our society. Our social system works to the advantages of whites and to the disadvantages of people of color. Historically, I think we can see how that has been true. But there's some significant problems here as well. Mainly, it does not help bring about racial reconciliation, but it sets up an us versus them mentality. People get very defensive when they hear this. It does very little to build bridges or to foster dialogue and discussion. Furthermore, it ignores the fact that all human beings are sinful. It is a fallacy to say that all whites are inherently racist or that all blacks are incapable of racism because this does not align with the scriptures that says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which is why Ebony and I would argue that all of these secular solutions, and George Yancey argues this as well, they ultimately fall short. Uh, they have some good points. They have some things that are worthy of discussion. Every single one of them have some, I mean, it, it'd be good to sit down and spend, uh, you know, we talked about this being a series, but we're like, they just can't handle that. So, you know, it'd be good to sit down and talk about each one of these and what are the, what are the points that are good and what are the points that are bad. Um, they, it generates a lot of worthy discussion and reflection. But they ultimately fall short because they leave out the critical Christian issues of sin, repentance, and reconciliation. A better solution is the one proposed in the New Testament, which is based on mutual responsibility for sin and Jesus-centered reconciliation. So we want to talk about that one for a minute. And I want to talk about really the question of what is the responsibility of the white community when it comes to, to healing racial divides, and what is the responsibility of the black community when it comes to healing racial divides. And so I want to talk to my, my white brothers and sisters for a moment. 
the understanding of the individualistic and structuralist views of racism helps me wrap my mind around this issue. It explains why many of us are frustrated with talk of critical race theory or, or reparations because we only see race through an individual lens. So we say, I'm not racist. So, you know, I didn't do these things in history. You can't blame me for the past. I wasn't around when this happened. So we need to move on. I understand those feelings. And I've probably felt some of those feelings myself. All right. But I also can see where even though I didn't directly participate in the sins of the past, I have still benefited from those sins. It's okay for me to acknowledge that. Okay, it's, it's okay for us to acknowledge that certain elements in our society have favored the majority over the minority. I don't, I don't know why that is so uncomfortable for us to admit that or to acknowledge that for most of the history. You know, we, we could say, I'm not personally racist, but for most of our history as a country, our society, our churches have been. It's okay to acknowledge that. Acknowledging the presence of institutional racism, whether it's in our educational system or it's in our judicial system or it's in the seats of power in corporations and government, goes a long way to bridging racial divides. At least be open to the conversation. Even if you say, well, I, don't, I don't buy any of that, at least be open to the conversation because that creates dialogue and discussion and dialogue and discussion creates empathy and empathy is where we come together. Years ago, uh, I was at our very first Stand Together meeting. And Stand Together was an organization called to talk about racial divides in our community. And uh, Trent Ogilvie called us together, and it was a group of black and white pastors. And the very first meeting we had, the question was asked, what are the racial issues in our city? Because this has just happened in uh, Charleston, the, the shooting at Mother Emanuel Church. And so the question was asked, what are the racial issues in our city? And as a white pastor, I sat there going, I, I don't know, I can't really think of any. I mean, I, this, I, and I, I, because I'm thinking of it through an individual lens. I'm thinking, well, I'm not racist, and the people that I know are not racist. The people I go to church with are not racist, so I, I, I really can't come up with any issues. And there was a, an African-American pastor that was there, and he said, look that way, and look that way. And we were sitting at a second-floor building on the square. He said, on one side of our city... The, the sidewalks are all newly paved and the landscaping is, is manicured and the, the storefronts are beautiful and there's tons of grant money flowing in. And on the other side of our city, the sidewalks are cracked and the street poles are, are crooked and it looks very, very different. And they're only separated by a block. Not all of our downtown Columbia is being revitalized. And it's the first time I saw it. I, I've been driving around it all my life, but it's the first time I saw it. It was okay for me to see that. It was okay for me to sit with that discomfort and say, why is that? It was okay to acknowledge that there may be some systems in place that have created that. It's okay for me to encourage our city to invest just as much in East 8th Street as it does on West 7th Street. I can at least listen to my black brothers and sisters when they point those things out to me. I can at least try to understand why they get uncomfortable when we start doing school rezoning, why they get uncomfortable when the police department's hiring. I can at least listen and try to understand and have some empathy, even if I don't 100% agree. 
I can at least be open to the conversation. And then let's talk about Peter for just a minute. I don't know how Peter responded when Paul confronted him in Galatians. I imagine there was some form of repentance. That's the only appropriate spot, response for when we're in the wrong. The New Testament teaches us to repent and confess. That's the way we bring about healing. In John chapter 1, 19, oh, I got the wrong verse up there. I'll just quote it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all wrongdoing. So you're familiar with that passage out of uh, John. It was 1 John, not John. That's why I got the wrong one. 1 John. We have to repent of racial attitudes, words, and actions of the past. I grew up, as I said, in the 70s and 80s in a small southern town in a class of 107 people that had three African Americans in it in a public school. I have said inappropriate things in the past. I have laughed at inappropriate jokes. I have fostered inappropriate stereotypes. The only proper response is to repent of those things. And I have repented of those things, but it's to publicly repent of those things and say that was wrong. Repentance, without repentance, we cannot have reconciliation. I also think it's okay for us to repent for the sins of our ancestors and our country's past. We do not have to take personal responsibility for their actions, but we can at least acknowledge how their actions caused damage and harm to other people. We can at least own that and say, I can clearly see how the actions of my ancestors, how the actions of this country have caused harm to a group of people. There's a biblical precedent in this as well. In Nehemiah, the sin of Israel is brought to the author's attention. The walls are in ruin, and the sin is brought to the author's attention. And he says at the very beginning of Nehemiah, in a prayer to God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you, day and night to your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. It's just one example in Scripture of corporate repentance. Just acknowledging that there is sin in our past. And then guess what happened once Nehemiah was able to do this? The process of rebuilding the walls began. Repentance leads to Jesus. And Jesus is ultimately the only answer to our racial divide. Amen. Over the past few weeks, I have been thinking a lot about what comes next. My heart and the heart of other African Americans long for acknowledgement and repentance from the majority culture, but where do we go from there? Racial healing will not only come from the repentance of the majority, but from how we respond as minorities as well. It is easy to call for repentance from the white race, and it is necessary for us to move forward, but what happens after repentance? And Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 4. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day. And seven times come back to you saying, I repent. You must forgive them. After repentance must come forgiveness. 
to my African-American brothers and sisters. I know this is hard. I have asked, how is forgiveness required of me? How is this payment for slavery? How is this justice for the blood-curdling screams of my forefathers? As they heard the news that their child was the latest one hung from the tree or the courthouse steps. What about Jim Crow, redlining, segregation, trauma, oppression? How can the scars on the backs of my ancestors be healed unless I continue to scream for payback? How can forgiveness be our responsibility in all this? It seems so unfair. Forgiveness feels like a relinquishing of power, and it is. Then I think about Jesus, nailed to a cross, in agony, weeping with blood pouring down his face, his wrist and his feet, the flesh on his back, torn and bleeding, pressed up against the cross. He looks down at those that mocked him, that screamed, crucify him. And he says in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In forgiving, we lay down our pride, our anger, and forgive just as Christ forgave us. In doing this, we become responsible to move the needle forward for the next generation. What if the beginning of the change we seek looks like kneeling beside our white brothers and sisters as they seek repentance and respond by saying, I forgive you. Forgiveness is not bowing down to the majority, but kneeling beside. I wonder if this is what my ancestors prayed for. What if this is what they sang from their souls in the fields and their segregated churches? A day that we, as both black and white, can come together side by side to build the church that Christ bled for. What if the freedom songs, the Negro spirituals that longed for heaven could look a little more like the church we have today? A church where we are both responsible for racial reconciliation. Repentance and forgiveness are our mutual responsibilities to move forward. Not in a way that forgets the past, but in a way that allows the past to propel us forward. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, it says, Bear with each other and forgive one another, if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Speaking of forgiveness, um, 
forgive me for continuing to put you in this situation <laughs> of having to talk about these issues. You told me you would not be able to get through this message without crying. Oh, yeah. And um, we continue to put you in a situation to talk about these difficult things, but I'm very thankful that you were on staff here. Mm. And uh, yeah. I'm very thankful for your voice in our leadership team and in, in your actions in helping us build a multi-ethnic church. There are no multi-ethnic churches in our city that I'm aware of. And we have one of the most diverse populations of any other county that touches us demographically. And we strongly believe that we as a church need to represent the city that we live in. Amen. We need to be inclusive and opening to, to all. Mm -hmm. And we're doing the hard work mm -hmm. of trying to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And it, we can't do it on our own. We can only do it through the power of the gospel, Amen. through the mutual responsibility Amen. of sin and uh, repentance and forgiveness and Jesus-centered reconciliation. And uh, that's why we continue to talk about these things. In this passage that Ebony closed with, there's no better way to close this message that uh, we are called to bear with one another, to forgive one another, and over all things to put on love, which binds us together in unity. Jesus is the only way forward. And that's why every one of the secular solutions are falling short. Because they exclude Jesus. Amen. And we want to move forward in Amen. the name of Jesus. We're going we're gonna to close with a word of prayer. Uh, and I've got one, one reminder about Easter. So uh, I'm going to start us and then... Do you mind if they stand while we close in prayer? Sure, that's fine. Can you stand, please? Just don't leave when we're done praying because we got one more thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Once you stand, you feel like you're leaving. That's true. Pray with me, please. Father, I am so thankful for a church that's willing to talk about these things. I'm so thankful for a people of grace who are willing to engage in hard conversations uh, with grace and forbearance with one another. It is the only way that we will bridge the historic divides that have separated us. Father, I repent of jokes I've laughed at, of times when somebody has said something inappropriate and I didn't have the courage to speak up. I just nodded my head or I just sat in silence for times that I myself have said inappropriate things. Racially, not just against my African-American brothers and sisters, but possibly against Hispanic brothers and sisters or any other race. I repent of those things. I confess those things and ask for your forgiveness. I also repent of our country's history. When I read about the ways in which the church supported and advocated slavery, for ways in which the church supported and advocated segregation, it was wrong. And... We confess that it was wrong and we admit that it was wrong and we repent of those past sins so that we can move forward into the future that you have called us to. That you say in Revelations in a description of heaven, a place where every nation, every tongue, every culture comes together and worships your son Jesus. It's in his name I pray these things. Lord, I acknowledge my sin as it comes to racial issues in America. I ask you to forgive me for my anger 
envy, resentment. And I thank you for meeting me every time I bring it back to the cross. Every time I learn a new story about the past that breaks my heart, I thank you for meeting me there. I thank you for reminding me that forgiveness is a process. And that is something I often need to bring to you. And right now from this stage, I declare that I forgive those of your people that have repented, that have acknowledged the past, and that have a heart to move forward. And I thank you for meeting me there and carrying us all to a place where we can be a church, where we love each other, where we know each other, we have empathy for one another, and that we all long to have a church that looks more like heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be amen. seated. No, you don't have to be seated. You can keep standing. Keep standing, because I'm not going to talk long. I'm not going to talk long. If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.